Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. So tonight, Book of Ephesians, you guys voted for this. We are on part one of the Book of Ephesians. It's going to be incredible time going through this book. I'm on this quest right now, if you didn't know, to preach every verse of the New Testament on live stream. It sounds crazy, but we've done the entire book of Revelation, every verse. We've done the entire book of Acts, every verse. And we've done the entire book of Romans, every verse. And maybe I'll be 70 years old when we finish, but we're going to finish by the grace of God. We're doing verse by verse tonight. I really do believe this, guys. Write this in the chat. Without the Bible, there will be no revival. I believe that with everything in me, we need the word of God. People say, you don't preach the Bible. And I'm like, what? live stream are you watching we've literally dedicated i don't know nine months total to verse by verse bible teachings because we need the word of god in our lives if there's anything i would want you to get relationship with besides obviously god is get a relationship with god's word get in the bible read the bible let the bible read you it's alive it's active it's sharper than any two-edged sword there's life changing power in the word of god so without that we will not see a move of god i know you're like, i want revival i want a prophetic word your prophetic word is in the word of god if you want to hear the voice of god read the bible out loud i mean really god's word is so powerful and we've gotten disconnected from it as the body of christ and i know this because i like to ask us all questions how much have you read your Bible this week? I mean, it's such a basic question, but if you thought about it, it's like, hmm, how much time have I literally spent, chronological time, reading the Bible this week? And we all, light bulb goes on, boom, revelation. I haven't spent any time. I've spent maybe 10 minutes a day, five minutes, and I know we're all busy, but are we too busy for the word of God? Oh, I feel that in my spirit. Are we too busy to open up God's word and let the Holy Spirit speak to us? Let God's word speak to us and transform our life. I mean, we wonder why our life is broken. I don't understand why nothing's working. Why is my life broken? Why does everything fall apart? We have the manual to life and we don't read it. And I know many of you guys in the chat, you do what I do. You open up the box. I don't need the instructions. And then at the end of you building whatever thing you're building, there's like 30 screws left. And you're like... Oh, I probably should have read the instructions. Where do those screws go? There's a lot of us with loose screws, and I don't mean like mentally like you have a loose screw. I mean literally our lives are falling apart because we didn't obey the manual. We didn't obey the word of God. We didn't obey what God's word says. And so we need the Bible. We need the word of God. This has to be our foundation. If we don't build our lives on the word of God, then our life is built on sand and it could get blown over at any moment. So we need God's word. Really without it, there is no revival. Paul is going to be the author of the book of Ephesians. My goal is not to go so deep you fall asleep. My goal is not to go so deep that you need scuba gear. My goal is not to go so deep it's out of reach for you where you go, oh man, everything's in Greek, everything's in Hebrew, everything's you know scholarly. It's to make the Bible simple for you to make it be able to apply to your life. That's the goal of our teachings and of tonight. Paul, the author of Ephesians, if you don't know who Paul was, Paul was a Jewish man, very religious, was part of a sect of the Pharisees, hated all things Christianity until he was traveling to persecute Christians when he met the resurrected Christ. Paul is on this journey going to persecute Christians, hears a voice from heaven, sees a bright light, and convinced Jesus is real and spends the rest of his life serving Jesus and would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. This is the story of Paul. It's an incredible story of a guy that literally hated Christianity. Like literally, I need an emoji that says literally. I'm going to get one made. Literally hated Christianity. Jesus met him on the road. So don't think, well, my family's too far. Paul was one of the most unlikely. His audience is believers in the area of Ephesus, hence why it's named the book of Ephesians. It's written to those in Ephesus, okay? It's all about the fact that we have a spiritual heritage and we are at war in the spiritual realm. In the beginning of the book, we'll talk about our spiritual inheritance. Later in the book, we will talk about the spiritual realm, that we are at war. We're not fighting physical people. If you are in a battle right now, you're not battling physical people. You are battle, battling spiritual powers. When you're fighting about something in your marriage, with your kids, with family, in politics, in Hollywood, wherever it's at, there's a spiritual battle going on. Paul's going to tell us our battle's not against, and this is the famous verse we all know from Ephesians 6, it's not flesh and blood 
but it's spirits. We are fighting, the one translation says, persons with no bodies. So we're literally fighting people that don't have bodies. These are spirit beings that we are at war against. Very important. But not only that, we're fighting. We have armor. God has given us armor to fight the battle. You don't need armor to sit around watching TV. You don't need armor to sit on Sunday morning and never do anything for God. You need armor when you're engaging in battle. So we're called to engage in battle. We're going to be using the New King James Version. I want you guys to do this. Please, everybody listen. There's 2,000 of you. Thank you, Lord. This is a great Bible study tonight. Big Bible study here. Follow along verse by verse. Don't just sit here and stare at me and look at my lights change colors in the background and try to figure out what my sign says. I want you to do me a favor and look in, open your Bible, open your Bible app, get a, an actual Bible and follow along verse by verse Bible study format. Involve your family, involve your kids, make it fun. We're going to make the Bible fun again. We're going to make God exciting. I really do believe that God has called me to help make his word exciting to people. People think it's dead and boring. That's a lie from the enemy. The word of God is exciting. You can be passionate. You can be excited and still have the word of God and use the word of God. Just because I talk fast doesn't mean I don't preach the word of God. People assume because I yell and talk fast, he doesn't preach the Bible. I'm thinking like, okay, I'm literally preaching verse by verse, but we got to make the Bible exciting again. Paul wrote this letter during the time he was imprisoned in Rome. Acts 28, 30 through 31 tells us, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So Paul was literally on house arrest for two years. This is when he wrote this book. He was imprisoned in Rome and people were coming to him. And in, as he's in prison on house arrest, He's reaching people and ministering to people. The church at the city of Ephesus was founded about seven years earlier by Paul on his homeward trip of his second missionary journey. So Paul planted this church. On Paul's third missionary journey, he stopped and stayed at Ephesus, stopped and stayed at Ephesus for three years, from the summer of AD 52 to the spring of AD 55. That's AD 55, not AD 55, AD 55. That was about three years he stayed in Ephesus where he baptized some of John the Baptist's followers. One of the famous stories of the Bible where Paul came and said, do you have the Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. We never even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And Paul baptized them in water. This is where he spent three months reasoning in the synagogue because there was idols everywhere. This is where Acts 19 says they were healed using handkerchiefs and aprons. This is where the story of the seven sons of Sceva took place. This is where there was a great revival among those who practiced witchcraft and two million equivalent U.S. dollars of witchcraft books were burned. This is all in Ephesus in the book of Acts. So that leads us into, for those of you asking, what verse are you on? We haven't started yet. That leads us into Ephesians 1.1. We're going to go verse by verse. Ephesians 1.1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul, notice this, identifies himself as an apostle, not one of the original 12 apostles, but one called later after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. Some say, well, did Paul meet Jesus? Well, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and that qualified him for being an apostle. An important thing to note, Paul says this, I am an apostle by the will of God. So who ordained Paul to be an apostle? Who said, Paul, you're an apostle, the will of God. An important thing to know is God called me. This is what Paul was saying. I was not chosen by a man. I was not called by a man. This was God who called me. And this is why you have to understand, if God calls you, why are you so worried about people that didn't call you? Like, why do you worry so much about people that didn't give you a, your assignment? Why does their opinion matter so much? People say, Isaiah, are you mad when people make a video and call you false? Why would someone who didn't call my name when I was an atheist matter so much to me? Why would somebody that did not rescue me, did not deliver me, did not heal me, did not choose me, I mean, some of you, you don't get to decide whether I follow God or not. You don't get to convince me to quit. Your opinion doesn't change the call of God. You're not the author and finisher of my faith. Jesus is. So I want to ask some of you, how are you going to be discouraged by some petty Facebook comment or some petty YouTuber when God is the one that called you out of darkness and told you to do what you're doing? Young people say, I'm so discouraged because somebody made a comment, a negative comment about me. And I'm thinking, you'll never survive this if you're worried about a negative comment. You got to remember, wait a minute, I didn't call me. God is the one that called me. He's the one when I was trying to become a police officer and, and I was in 
fake atheists. That's what I like to say, because I don't think there's no such thing as an atheist. Everybody knows there's a God. And God called me and said, Isaiah, I want you to go preach to my people. This is why when Amos was struggling and priest Amaziah came to Amos and said, Amos, everything you preach is judgment. Nobody wants you around these parts. Stop preaching. Nobody likes you. Amos, respond, Amos responded, I was out tending to the fig trees when your God called me and said, go preach to my people. I'm not a trained prophet. I wasn't raised to be a prophet. I was out in the vineyard minding my own business and your God came to me. And he goes, oh, by the way, you're going to lose your family, your wife. All this stuff's going to happen. But this was the religious priest telling Amos, you can't be preaching. You're not qualified. You don't have what it takes. And Amos says, I, I was called by God. And Paul later will tell us this. Paul says, I wasn't called by man. If I was trying to please everybody on Facebook or YouTube or Instagram or at my church, I would never be a slave of God or a bondservant of Christ because you're never going to please everybody. If you talk too fast, they say, slow down. If you slow down, they say you don't talk fast enough. If you yell too loud, they say you're too loud. If you talk too slow, they say you have no passion. No matter what you say, no matter what you preach, if you preach about the gifts, they say it's not about the gifts. If you don't preach about the gifts, they say that you're religious. If you preach about revival, they say, well, that's not in the Bible. Anything you say or preach, someone somewhere is going to have a problem with it. So what does that mean? That means I can't look to people for my validation. I have to look to God. He's the author. He's the finisher. He's the one calling me. So Paul says, I was called by the will of God. God's the one that called me to the believers in Ephesus. God called me. And so know who God is calling you to. Not just that God's calling me, but know who God is calling you to. God, Paul says, God called me to be an apostle and God called me to the believers in Ephesus. So the question would be for us, who is God calling you to? Who has God called you to reach? Right now, God has called me to you guys. Like literally, I've changed my entire ministry, my entire life, and the beginning of 2020, end of 2019, pivoted everything to reach you guys because God said reach people online. And so that's what I'm literally, I'm doing that. This is all a prophetic word coming to pass. And so I'm pouring my life into this because I'm responsible for you. God's called me to you. Now that could change, but right now, I'm putting my life into this, all my energy, all my time, full time. This is not like, oh, I do all that. And then this is when I'm bored. I come on here. This is literally what I'm giving my life to. So I just don't understand why people say, well, you know, I don't know why you're doing the online stuff. I just don't really understand it, brother. You know, there's other stuff you could be doing. And some of us, you know, it's not all about the online. It's okay. You don't have to understand my calling. It's not your calling. So you don't have to worry about it if it's not your calling. Just cheer me on just say go go for it reach people like i don't look at other ministries that aren't online and say well maybe you should be online you could reach more people you shouldn't be i cheer them on going that's your calling god has called you to those in ephesus god has called you to those in corinth god has called me to those online maybe you're not called to go online praise the lord know who you're called to be maybe you're called to reach your kids maybe you're called to reach your husband maybe god has called you to reach your work find out who god has called you to reach now some of you are like my kid will never get saved listen let me just say this about paul if paul could be saved trust me your kids can be saved if paul could be saved your friends can be saved paul was one of the most unlikely people to be saved for several reasons reason one he persecuted christians he thought the Christians taught false doctrine and he forcefully brought them to trial and executed them. Like, forget about a YouTuber making a video about you or a Facebooker or a couch theologian. Paul was getting Christians murdered. Number two, he was a Jewish Pharisee and believed he was already right before God. So there's no need for Christianity in his life. Isn't this true? Religious people are the hardest ones to reach because they already think their void is filled. They already think they're right with God. How do you convince someone that already thinks they're right with God that they don't know God at all? That's the, that's the trouble of trying to reach those. I would rather 10, 10 times out of 10 preach to an atheist than preach to a religious person. Oh yeah, 100 times I would rather preach to an atheist or an agnostic than try to reach a religious person. Oh, I pray, brother. I already go to church. Don't tell me. But you don't live it. You don't live it, you preach it, you talk about it, you know it, but you don't walk it out. That's religion, it's like a vaccine, it gives you a small part of something, so you never catch the real thing. I want the real thing. I don't want some, come on, share this video with somebody, I want real. I don't want some dead religious thing. Number three, he followed all the rules of his Jewish heritage and didn't believe he was spiritually separated from God. He thought that he was righteous. Remember what Jesus said, I didn't come to save those that think, think they're righteous, 
but I came to save those that know they're sinners and need a savior. So Jesus is really not interested in those that are like, well, I'm right with God. I don't need God. Friend, you know, I, every time somebody does an altar call, I come down to that altar. I, I need God. I want God. I keep my place. I keep myself in a place of humility where if you come to my church and if you preach, let's give everything to God. If you, if you want to give everything to God, come to the altar. I will be the first one at the altar. Isaiah, I will be at the first. I need you, God. I want you. I respond to all the altar calls. I need it more, 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 more. I don't think I'm arrived. I know I need God. I don't think I'm righteous. Oh, I'm self-righteous. I don't need God. It's all, you know, you guys are peasants. You need God. No, I go to God as a beggar saying, Lord, heal me, deliver me, save me. In fact, maybe you don't know this. There's new people. So I'll say this. I respond to all my own altar calls and people laugh at me. Like, how are you going to preach and then respond to your own altar call? I've been doing this for seven years now. I've been responding to my own altar calls. So I literally will preach and then I'll get on my knees and say, Lord, I respond to my own preaching, my own word. I'm not up there haughty. I, you've seen me guys before at the events on my knees, on my face, first one at the altar because I need God. And if you get to a place where you're not like that, that's where pride sets in. So there's so many teachers and preachers, they're in this place of pride where you'll never see them on their knees. You'll never even say, hear them say they could be wrong. You'll never even hear them say they need God. They need breakthrough. They need deliverance. I will be the first one to make fun of me. Praise the Lord. Join the club. If you're like, well, I'm going to make fun of you for that. Get in line. There's a long line of people that make fun of me. I love it. I'm going to be the first one at the altar. I'm going to be hungry. Let us have that posture of saying, God, I'm not right with you. I need you. Keep in that place of humility. How low can you go? Of all these things Paul went through, Paul still got saved. And the crazy part is this. In Jesus's day, the prostitutes were getting saved, but the Pharisees rejected him. How is a prostitute have more spiritual perception, spiritual discernment to notice this is God in the flesh, son of God, and then the Pharisees missed it. So don't be a Pharisee. Be someone that says, man, I'm not going to be letting the prostitutes re go, go to Jesus and get saved and the Pharisees not get saved and reject Jesus. It's about being humble. Paul calling the believer saints, it meant they were believers in Jesus. Saint comes from a, a Greek word that means to be set apart, consecrated, or holy. So it refers to being different. You can't be a saint or a Christian and be the same as everybody else. It contradicts, it's a contradiction. So if you're not different than everybody else you know in the world, you're not a Christian, you're not a saint. So the word saint is used 62 times in the Bible. One commentator said, a saint, my friend, is one who trust, trusted Christ and is set aside for the sole use of God. There are only two kinds of people. This is what a commentator said, two types of people, the saints and the ain'ts. <laughs> Somebody typed that in the chat. He said, there's only saints and there's ain'ts. If you're a saint, then you're not an ain't. And if you're an ain't, then you're not a saint. You're an ain't. So you can't be both. You're either an ain't or you're a saint. I want to be a saint. I want to be set apart for the purposes of God. I don't want to be this watered down, lukewarm, fit in, blend in, just like everybody else, Christian. I want to be set apart for the purposes of God. Are you set apart? Come on. Are you set aside? Is your life dedicated to the sole purpose of serving God? Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Ask yourself that. What is the aim of my life? What is the goal? Where is my life going? Is my life headed towards the direction of serving God? I have no other purpose. Friend, I have no, get to a place where there's no purpose for your life other than serving God. Like my life is of no value. Imagine today I decide to stop preaching. Okay. Stop ministering. Stop preaching. I come, I leave the ministry and my life has no purpose. Like I have no, there's no reason for me to even be here because my sole purpose is advancing the kingdom of God. That's the place where you be, you become a saint or you are a saint is when your life is set apart, consecrated. We're going to guys, we've only went through one verse and we've been here 20 minutes. We got to go here because we got two chapters to go through. I'm sorry. Ephesians one, two grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul greeted the Ephesians with two of the best desires that he could grace and peace in his day greek people began the letters with charis which is the greek word for grace or rejoice jews use the word shalom or peace and they still do that a lot in israel in verbal greetings so charis stands for grace that results in joy pleasure gratification benefits and beauty the greek word for peace refers to total well-being harmony peace of mind and everything intended for a person's good so paul is greeting them with gratification joy 
benefit, beauty, harmony, well-being, peace of mind, everything that God's intended for you, that is grace and peace. That's what he's greeting them with. He says, grace to you and peace from God. And remember, the peace that God gives is peace that the world can't offer. This is amazing. The world can't offer the peace that God offers. Jesus said, I have peace the world knows not of. This is not peace the world. It's beyond our understanding is the peace of God. And this is what Jesus Christ offers you. And this is not natural peace. Like peace is amazing, right? When you have peace, everything's going good. This is not the peace that the world offers. This is the peace that God offers and it surpasses all understanding. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every, oh, this is good stuff. Hold it. Let's put, put it in park here blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ. So verse three begins a very long sentence in the original Greek. There's no periods between verses three and verses 14 in the Greek. So Paul starts out by talking about the spiritual blessings that Christians have and goes all the way to verse 14 in what we would call today as a run-on sentence. Paul's going to go uh, what is that? 11 verses with no period of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And Paul uses bless in two ways. He says, bless God and also acknowledge the blessings that God has given us. The Bible says that God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. God has blessed us with everything we need to follow him. This is going to be a life-changing revelation for you guys. Everything you need, God has already given you. We live in this mentality that because we don't live the way that we should live for God, we think that we need more spiritual blessings. Let's all be honest here. If I could just get more spiritual blessings from God, I need more fire, more power, more, 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 then I can live the life God has called me to live. But here's the problem. Paul says, God has blessed us with, what does he bless us with? Type in the chat, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So like every single blessing literally we could ever get, Christ has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That means, oh man, I love this preaching tonight. I wish there was more people here. That means this, you're not missing anything. Every single one of you that are born again in Christ, you're not missing anything. You're not missing out on a blessing. God has given it all to you in Christ right now. That if you are his child, those who are born again are children of God. John 1 says he gave us right to become children of God. He's given you every spiritual blessing. But notice this, there's two fathers identified in scripture. There is God and there's the devil. Those are the two fathers identified in scripture. Those that are not born again, this is going to be a hot take, but it's a biblical take. A lot of biblical takes are hot takes. If you're not born again, you are a child of the devil. Do you want me to say that again for those of you that are sitting in the back that haven't read the Bible in a long time? If you're not born again, you are a child of the devil. Those who are born again, children of God. Those who are not born again, children of the devil. Some people say, well, you know, brother, you said a bad thing about a celebrity. You called them a sinner. And don't say that. They're just children of God. They just don't know it yet. Wrong. That's not. They're the children of the devil. When you look at somebody that's trending right now, like Beyonce, and say, oh, well, she's a child of God. She just doesn't know it, brother. No, she's not. Beyonce, according to your Bible, is a child of Satan is a child of the devil. In fact, the Bible goes as far to say, if you keep sinning, you are a child of the devil. You're not a child of God because John says he gives us right to become children of God. Now, when you are born again, and I'm saying stuff that your pastor won't tell you, it's all good. That's what I'm here for. When you are born again, you become, and God gives you the right to become, I should say it that way, children of God. John 1 says, not natural descent, human decision, or the husband's will, but born of God, born of the spirit. So that's the ones that get spiritual blessings, spiritual benefits are children of God. If you're not a Christian, then I'm sorry to tell you, you are a child of Satan. That's not like a mean thing to say. That's a biblical reality because there's two gods. There's the uppercase G God. There's the lowercase God of this world. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. That's a real, that's a fact. It's not like trivial. That's not debatable. That's not objective. That is a subjective fact. If you're not a Christian, you are a child of the devil who's the God of this world. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. And I know I'm going to get a lot of heat for that. It's okay. I get it when I preach the word. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Just as he chose us in him. Okay, so I'm going to go kind of slow because it sounds complicated. It's not. I'll explain it all. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So this is what Paul is saying. Before ever, anyone was ever born, God knew all about them. Even before, think about this chat, before the earth was created, God knew every single thing about you. Every day was already planned, the Bible says, before the earth was created, God knew everything. God who is infinite, who always existed, has no beginning, knew every single person that will ever be born, that was ever born before they lived on the earth and before he formed the earth, and he wants every person to become his child. But because God wanted each person to choose that privilege, he gave mankind free will, freedom to make a decision about whether or not they would serve him or be saved from their sins. Now, God longs for each person to be a part of his family, but he won't force them. When a person makes that decision, they instantly become holy and blameless in his sight. When you receive Christ, you follow Jesus, you become a son of God, you instantly become blameless. The grace that Paul talks about in verse two, he's talking about something that's available as a gift. It's not earned. So I don't earn the right, like I did something. So now God says, you're my son. The way I become a son of God is I'm born again. I receive Christ through faith by grace and that's what gives me the right, but I don't earn it. It's not like if you pray a hundred hours, you could become a son of God. Or you could become chosen. That's not how it works. God wants this for everybody. Now, I won't go into predestination long because I have a whole video on it. You can find it on the channel. It'll take me too long to explain. But basically, Calvinist or Reformed theology believes that God in his sovereignty determines who becomes saved by grace and there's no human free will involved because we all have depraved nature it makes man unable to choose. So God pretty much predestined everybody. No one gets to choose. God's sovereign. He knows who's going to be who. That's Calvinism. That's Reformed theology. That's the, you know, the no human free will. We're saved by grace and God's predestined us. I obviously don't believe that. They also believe you can never lose your salvation because God's the one that chose you before the foundation of time. And there's no way to lose it. If God chose it, there's no losing it. I don't believe that. I believe in free will. I believe that we have the choice. God wants, here's, is, here's a basic breakdown. God wants everybody saved. He wants everyone to serve him, but he gives every single person the free will to choose whether they'll serve him or not because love requires will. So God's sovereignty doesn't say, I know who will serve me, who won't serve me, and there's no free will. It's like we're all on this this role that we're all on this predetermined board game that no matter what, the results always end the same. I don't believe that. I believe in free will, that we have the choice. I believe that's what scripture teaches all the way to the garden. They had the choice to eat the fruit or not. And they chose to eat the fruit. That's free will. Again, Calvinism and Reformed theology doesn't teach that. They teach God's predestined everybody and we're all kind of going through the motions of God's sovereignty. One commentator said, there's no such thing taught in the word of God as predestination to eternal condemnation. If men are lost, listen to this. This is a commentator. They are lost because they do not come to Christ. When men do come to Christ, they learn the wonderful secret. Oh, this is so good. Look at this. When men do come to Christ, they learn the wonderful secret that God has foreknown it all from all. God has foreknown it all from eternity. Wow. So what he's saying is there's no such thing as predestination to eternal condemnation. That means there's no such thing as God creating people just to send them to hell. Because that's what you have to believe if you believe in this, you know, this reformed Calvinist, Calvinistic idea. He says, if men are lost, they're lost because they don't come to Christ. And when men do come to Christ, they learn the wonderful mystery that God knew from the beginning of time they were going to come to him. How beautiful is that? Another person said, freedom from legalism comes through accepting the truth about our favored position in the family of God. Those who have put their faith in Christ have become adopted into his family. There's no concept that speaks any clearer of acceptance than adoption. Whereas a pregnancy can come as a surprise, adoption is always planned and always premeditated. That's so good. So we are adopted into the family of God. He's given us, the Bible says, a spirit of adoption. We're no longer orphans. Adoption is premeditated. You don't accidentally adopt somebody. So that is why the Bible says we are adopted. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he may gather together in all, he may gather together in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth in him. Okay, let me explain this 
very simply. First of all, and again, I know it sounds complicated. Like, what does that even mean? I'm going to show you. First of all, we are redeemed. To be redeemed means to be set free from a penalty because the ransom has been paid. Since each of us was a prisoner, if you didn't know this, you were a prisoner to sin and our punishment was death. Okay, before you met Christ, you were a prisoner to sin. The punishment was death. God sent Jesus to die in our place. His blood becomes the ransom that was enough to set us free because his blood because Jesus was without sin. If Jesus had been like every other man that sinned, his death wouldn't have made a difference spiritually, okay? But because Jesus was without sin, he could offer himself as a sinless payment for us, okay? Because he had no sin, he becomes a sinless payment for the ransom. And only he can do that because he had no sin. His blood is needed because from the beginning, God says this, this is Leviticus 17, 11, that's going to help you guys. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given to you upon the altar to make atonement for your soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. This is God's law. This is God's standard. This is God's design. Again, Leviticus 17. What does it say? It is blood that makes atonement for the soul. Jesus lives sinless. We have the ransom. He pays the ransom through his blood. And now we've been redeemed. We've been bought back from the evil one that we used to serve. And I'll show you this even more later. Secondly, a Christian has the power to become wise and prudent beyond human ability. So you can look at life through God's perspective. We get spiritual insight and understanding. Once you become a Christian, you're like, wow, I see the world in a way I could have never seen it before because part of my inheritance is getting a God's eye view. I see things from a different perspective. For example, if I look at Walmart, okay, and I'm standing in front of Walmart, it's massive. Walmart's huge. But if I'm in an airplane right above Walmart and I look down, Walmart's tiny. The difference is perspective. In one place, I'm standing right in front of it. In another place, I'm above in a different perspective, a different bird's eye view, so you'd say. So that thing that once looked big is now small. Now the thing didn't get smaller, it just looks smaller. That's God's perspective. When you're seated with Christ in heavenly places and you look down on your problems, they're not as big as you thought they were before. Like remember getting saved and you're like, none of my problems matter. They're not big anymore. It's the God's eye view. You're seeing it from where God sees it. That's that wisdom and that prudence you get when you see it from God's perspective. All of a sudden you're like, oh, that's not really a big deal. I could overcome that. That would have killed you before, but now you can overcome it. Third, oh, I love this. I love this. A Christian is forgiven. Paul stresses this. This is by God's grace, which he richly poured upon us. And every single sin we've ever done has been forgiven. Think about how incredible forgiveness is. You can do every possible terrible thing you can imagine for 50 years and come to Christ by grace, put your faith in him, and God says forgiven. You no longer owe the debt. Because friend, that's the good news. In fact, that's the best news ever the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you're watching this and you're living in a cycle of sin and you think it's free, no big deal, you know, sin doesn't matter, there's going to come a time where you get rung up. There's a tab being saved in your name when you're sinning and you're going to have to pay for your sin and the payment is death. That's the payment for the ransom is you die. You're separated from God and death not being literal is being separation from God. So Jesus says, I'm going to pay the ransom by my blood and you've been forgiven. No longer do you pay for your sin, which is the, the wages of sin, the payment of sin. You get paid to sin and the pay, the wages you get is death. But now you have the gift of God, which is eternal life. That is the best news ever. Sin is not free, but Jesus paid the price to forgive you of all your sins. If you think about it this way, anytime you buy something, in a sense, you've redeemed it. Okay, you've paid a price for the item to become yours. If I go buy what? An iPhone. The iPhone doesn't belong to me. The iPhone belongs to Apple. If I go pay the price, whatever it is now, it's crazy, right? Like $1,500 and I pay that price, Apple takes the item that belonged to them and gives it to me. It's now my possession and I can do what I want with it. I've now redeemed that iPhone. I've, I've redeemed it because I purchased it. In the same way, God bought us from the possession of Satan and death with the high cost of his blood on the cross. We were under the power of Satan. We were experiencing death, which I want you to realize death doesn't mean like physical. It means separation. After we're purchased or redeemed, 
We now belong to God and God can do what he wants with us. So my life is no longer mine. It belongs to God because he's redeemed me. So choose. Would you rather the devil own you or would you rather God own you? Because somebody owns you. Like, listen, somebody owns you. Either God owns you or the devil owns you and God wants to buy you back. He wants to redeem you. You need to let him redeem you. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. I love this. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Oh, it gets better? Wait, what? Excuse me, Paul? It gets better? In him we also have obtained an inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. That he, that, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. An inheritance is something given from someone else you're in relationship with. You can receive an inheritance of a house, a car, money. Maybe you knew a relative, maybe your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, somebody died and left you an inheritance and they designated that I want this person to receive something from me. In the same way, God gives us in his written will, in his estate, an inheritance. We're entitled to receive all these spiritual blessings. Many of them, we get them now or we get them when we get to heaven, but there is an inheritance. There is something that God is giving us, something that belongs to us through Christ's death on the cross. Christ leaves us an inheritance, not just the Holy Spirit, which is beyond good enough, but Christ leaves us every spiritual blessing when he died on that cross. He left us this inheritance. He gets better, y'all. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So Paul's day, a seal was a portable instrument that they would use to stamp a document or an, an other item. And it had the power and the authenticity of an actual signature. And no document was considered reliable unless it had the seal on it. So you had a seal, everybody had their own seal. And if you had a document to verify it was genuine, it was reliable, it was real, it was authentic, you would stamp that wax seal to identify that. If you received a letter in the mail that was partially opened, you might wonder, well, maybe there was something added or stolen from it, but the seal over the letter that sealed it together made it true and reliable. So this is what Paul is saying. When you became a Christian, God sealed you and gave you, whether you know it or not, the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a down payment. This is an indication of future blessings that God's going to give you when you get to heaven. But notice he says, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance so right now, God has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. It's like back in the day when they had layaway. I know they don't have it anymore. You would go put money down, a down payment, and then you'd come back and fully purchase the item. So God has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. But remember, Christ is going to come back and fully redeem us, fully purchase us and the earth when the new Jerusalem comes during the return of Christ. The, the Holy Spirit right now in us and with us is God's guarantee. He's going to complete the purchase. This is why Paul says it's a deposit until the redemption of those who are God's possessions. So we already belong to him, but the full payment is yet to come. So nobody can buy me. I've already been set apart. I've been set. Sorry, devil. I have no price. Well, how much to get you to backslide? There's no price. Well, how much? What would it take to get you to fall away? There's no price. I've already been purchased. And how could you have a bigger down payment than the Holy Spirit? I mean, some of you thought that your house, you know, $20,000 was a big down payment. God says, I'll show you a big down payment. Here's my spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit as the down payment to guarantee I'm coming back for my people to establish a government that will never end. There's a real Jewish man coming back to planet earth to establish a real government, friend. This is alive and real. Jesus says, I'm coming to make the full payment. Paul says the full payment is yet to come. It's coming, but it's not there yet. We have that deposit, the Holy Spirit sealing us. And just like a seal would make a letter secure, it makes us secure. It makes a letter authentic, the Holy Spirit makes us authentic. Just like the seal makes a letter approved, it, the Holy Spirit makes us approved by God. Just like it makes a letter genuine, the Holy Spirit makes us genuinely sons and daughters of God. Now, no Christian that's really a Christian thinks, well, since I'm sealed and secure, I can sin all I want. No, 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 friend. When you get sealed by the Holy Spirit, you no longer have the desires to please the enemy, but now you have desires to obey and please God. So we don't take advantage of the Holy Spirit's power all the time and say, well, now I can go sin because I've been sealed. 
You've been sealed so that you can live for God. Let me go through this. Some of the benefits of our inheritance. Super quick. Rewatch this after, okay? Because you won't have time to write them down. I don't have time to go into all these. I want to get through this. And so let me give you these quick. You can rewatch it later. Romans 3.24. These are benefits of our inheritance. Because you're like, well, what about all this inheritance you're talking about, brother? These are the benefits. Romans 3.24. We are justified. Romans 8.1. We are not condemned. Romans 8.2. We are set free from the power of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 1.2. We are sanctified and made acceptable to God because of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30, we are righteous and holy because Jesus is in us. 1 Corinthians 15.22, at the resurrection, we're going to be made alive eternally. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we receive God's righteousness. Galatians 3.28, we are one with Christ and other believers. Colossians 1.28, we are perfect in God's sight. Colossians 2.11, we are set free from our old sinful nature. And 2 Timothy 2.10, we have eternal glory with Christ. These are just some of the inheritance benefits that we have. So what are you talking about? It's not that fun being a Christian. It's not that, that's not that cool. What do you, you're, you're, you're not, you're not utilizing your inheritance of the joy, the peace. I didn't even go into first Corinthians 12, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and every other blessing that God has given us through an inheritance. Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks, making mention of you in my prayers. So Paul says this. This is what I want you to get here because I'm going to go quick. Paul says, I'm not just praying for you when something bad happens. I'm praying for you all the time. And this is what I want to challenge us with as our community tonight. Let's start, and I'm talking to myself too. Let's start praying for people and mentioning them in our prayers when good things are happening, not just when bad things are happening. Paul says, I'm making mention of you in my prayers and I'm thanking God and giving thanks for you. So in other words, I'm not just going to pray for my, my dad or my mom or my wife or my kids or my family or whatever, my friend at work, whenever they're like, I'm struggling, pray for me. Cause really that's usually when we pray for them. And I'm being honest, I do the same thing, but I think what Paul is saying is, well, I know because it says it, I'm going to give thanks to you and make mention of your prayers, of you in my prayers all the time. It says, I, I do not cease giving thanks. So I want to be in that place where I'm like, Lord, thank you for this person. Lord, bless this person. I'm giving thanks for them. I'm interceding for them even when there's nothing bad happening. Like why, why do we always have to go to God when something bad happens? Why do we look at God like an insurance policy? Nobody looks at their insurance until something bad happens. I don't want God to be my fire insurance. I don't want God to be my, you know, my Geico, my car insurance, where every time I wreck my life, I go to my glove box of prayer and call God and like God is some type of genie. I don't want to live that way. I want to be like, Lord, you are worthy. I want to talk to you every day when everything's going good. Like right now, everything's going good in my life. It's amazing. I really don't have any significant trials in my life right now. Let me remember you right now as if everything was going wrong. Because we all know when everything's going wrong, we all run to God. Lord, help me. I need, I need you. You crawl to God. But let us crawl to God and go to God when everything is going good. Ephesians 1.17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So wisdom is the one thing the Bible says if we ask for, God will not resist. I think if you don't get anything tonight, get this. Every single day we should be asking God for wisdom. You should not let a day go by where you don't ask God for wisdom. Look at what James 1.5 says. If any of you lacks wisdom, and we all do, wisdom is the application of knowledge. Wisdom gives me the ability to apply what I know. If I know I should be praying and I don't, I don't have wisdom. If I know I should be praying for the sick and I don't, I don't have wisdom. If I know I should be doing something, living holy, and I'm not living holy, I don't have wisdom. We need wisdom to apply knowledge. That's what wisdom is, the application of knowledge. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. So he says, listen, God is not going to say, well, no, there's something wrong with you. You don't get this. This is only for special. And God's not going to say, no, I don't want to give you that. He says, if you ask for wisdom generously, God's like, I got plenty y'all who want some. God will just distribute it freely. So we should all be asking for wisdom. He says, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, you might read the Bible and feel like, I don't get nothing out of it. You need the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of revelation will make the Bible come alive and reveal what God is saying. Now, if I'm honest with you guys, when the Bible says this, ask for, or Paul says, this is what I'm praying for you. Paul says, I'm praying that you'd have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Some commentators say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. 
But Paul didn't say the Holy Spirit, did he? No, he said the spirit of wisdom and revelation. If he said, I'm praying that God would give you the Holy Spirit, he would say, I'm praying that God would give you the Holy Spirit. But Paul says the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of revelation. I've read all the commentaries. I've looked it up everywhere. I'm being honest with you here. I don't fully understand how this works in the spiritual realm. I know a lot about angels in the Bible. I know a lot about unclean spirits, but I don't fully understand what Paul is fully saying when he says the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. I don't know if Paul is just saying like the spirit of like, let God give you wisdom. I know that's what everyone would interpret it and let you give you revelation. Or Paul is saying there's an, there's a real spirit, like an actual spirit of wisdom like an actual spirit of revelation that God will give you. We know that God has the sevenfold spirits. There's the sevenfold spirits of God, which are the seven natures of God. I've made a video on that. And the book of Isaiah tells us what those seven spirits and natures are. And so I don't know if it's something like that. I don't fully understand. I don't want to act like I do, but it's interesting. We should pray on this and we should dive into this when he says there's a spirit of wisdom and there's a spirit of revelation. And again, I know a lot of commentators say, well, that's just the Holy Spirit. Well, then why didn't Paul say Holy Spirit? He said spirit of wisdom and revelation. Ephesians 1.18, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may also know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of glory of his inheritance in the saints. So Paul is worried about this. After describing all of these amazing blessings, you still won't truly see how good the God we serve is. So he says, let the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. One translation says, let your heart be enlightened. Some translations say, let the eyes of your heart be enlightened. This can be defined as your personality or your total being. When the Bible describes the person's heart, it's describing their personality. It's describing not your beating heart, but your literal being, who you are. So Paul is saying, let your eyes be open to the spiritual blessings, to the inheritance, and to what God has done and what God has given you. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul is praying this. Believers denote to such an extent that the very power that raised Christ is now living in us. Like, I don't know if you realize this, but the same spirit that raised Christ is living on the inside of us. You have the spirit of God living on the inside of you. The most powerful spirit in existence is living. And the Bible says Jesus is seated far above every principality and power. And this is describing ranks of angels, ranks of demons. And it's showing us that it's not like Jesus and the demons are here. It's not like Jesus is here and the principalities, the most strongest demonic spirits in the devil are right here. The Bible's saying Jesus is so far above every principality, every power, every spirit. Like he's not on the same weight class. He's not on the same playing field. He's far, he's been seated far above every power and principality. So that little pesky demon bugging you, that little pesky spirit running the country, running this, running politics, running the movies. Jesus is so far above all of that, so in control. Any angel, any demon, any church, any believer are all under Jesus' authority and Jesus reigns supreme. And at the blink of, his, of an eye, the devil is defeated. So no, we don't glorify the devil. The devil is real and the devil does have power. We don't glorify him. Jesus is far above him and has the power over him. Okay, let's go into two. I could probably do this in 15 minutes. Let's do two because it's not long because I don't want to just do one chapter and I've gone 50 minutes on one chapter. Ephesians 2. And somebody type in the chat, stop apologizing for going long. Okay, type that in the chat so that I could uh, feel better. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you he made alive. Oh, this is so good. Who were dead in trespasses and sin. That's what you were, it's saying. Okay, who were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. So what Paul is saying is that before a person meets Christ, he is dead, like dead, not physically, but spiritually dead in sin. Now, even if you can say to yourself, well, I'm a good person, brother, good people. I'm, I'm in control of my life. My family's good people. 
you're still actually dead. Spiritually, you're controlled by Satan more than you realize. Not a Christian, I'm dead. I'm controlled by Satan more than I'll ever realize. That's what the Bible says. And just as a dead person can't communicate with the living, those who are dead spiritually have no communication with God. There's no relationship because sin causes a gap between God and unforgiven people. So if you're not been forgiven, washed, there's a gap between you and God called sin. And what the blood of Jesus does is it reconciles us back to God, removes the barrier, removes the gap. We're forgiven of our sins and no longer are we under that. It says this though, Paul points out saying, we've all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. You walked according to the course of this world, he says. And that's the destiny, the plan, the course, the course that the devil has set out for you. That's the, who Paul identifies the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. So the devil, Satan, okay, the devil is the spirit of the, the prince of the power of the air and his spirit works in the sons of disobedience. This is Satan. Satan and his spirits, I should say, work in people who are disobedient to God. Satan, and this might shock you, if you're part of our channel for a while, you know what I'm going to say here. Satan is not in hell. I know you've been taught in Sunday school, Satan's in hell with the pitchfork. Satan is not in hell. Hell is not Satan's address. It's Satan's destination. There will be a day in Revelation where Satan is thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity, but that's not where Satan's at. There's no point in Satan being in hell. One day he will be in hell, tormented, but that's not the time. Paul says he's the prince of the power of the air. Peter says he roams the earth like a lion looking to devour people. So the devil principally, principally is on the earth and he's in the air, which is the second heaven. I have a video on that. I have a the rank of Satan's kingdom. And I talk about how the devil's in the second heaven. He's the prince of the power of the air. This is where he's working. Jesus said he's the prince of demons. He has minions that work from him. He's governing from the air. He's not in hell with all the people. He's governing in the air, controlling things, controlling spirits, controlling people, controlling politics, controlling dictators, controlling kings and countries. He's ruling from the air. That's where the devil's ruling the second heaven. There's many names the Bible gives him. A few are Revelation 12, 10. He's the accuser. Ephesians 4, 27. He's the devil. First Peter 5, 8. He's your adversary. Revelation 9, 11, He's the angel of the bottomless pit. Matthew 12, 24. He's Beelzebub. Genesis 3, 4. And Revelation 22. He's a serpent. Matthew 12, 24. He's the ruler of the demons. Matthew 13, 19. He's the wicked one. So I know you think because you live this westernized, whatever my pastor says is right Christianity that the devil doesn't have any power I know you think that the devil's not mentioned in scripture I know you think the devil's not real and if you ignore him everything will be fine but you're wrong that how's that been working pastors say you glorify the devil just ignore him that's not what the Bible says the Bible says he's working against us and we fight back against him he's actively working he is our adversary and ignoring the devil doesn't overcome his kingdom we are called to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. So this is not some care bear, some uh, my little pony gospel where we just, oh, we're just going to sit around and the devil's going to be fine. He'll just leave us alone. The reason why he leaves you alone is because you're on his team. The reason why the devil ignores you because you work for him. He doesn't want to mess with you because you're preaching the gospel he wants you to preach. You're, oh, Christians can't have demons. That's what the devil wants you to preach. Ding, ding, ding. He wants you to say Christians can't have demons because then you'll never fight him. You'll never cast him out. He could hide and live rent free. So be very, very careful that you're not accidentally working for the enemy, defending him all the time. We shouldn't talk bad about, you know, we shouldn't expose him. You're literally defending him by saying that. So just be very careful that you don't ascribe to this soft gummy bear Christianity. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And here's where the story changes. Paul says, we were children of disobedience. Okay, we were controlled by Satan. Satan and his minions had power over us. But God, I love that, but God. Type that in the chat, but God. Should have been dead, but God. Should have lost my mind, but God. Shouldn't even be here today. Come on, chat, but God should still be out there lost, but God. Should have died of that sickness, but God. Someone type that, type your but God story in the chat. Isn't it amazing that even though we were dead in our trespasses, even though the prince of the power of the air controlled us, but God, Paul says, who is rich in his mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. This is incredible. This is what God did. 
He gave sinners the opportunity to have relationship with him. And it gets even better. What? Excuse me. How could it get any better? Oh, it's about to. Ephesians 2, 6 or 7. And he, so he, he makes us alive. And then look what he does. He raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, we might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What? He makes us alive, raises us up together. What is happening here? And he makes us sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, that in the age to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We become God's trophy. God says, I'm going to make you alive. I'm going to raise you up. And then I'm going to seat you in heavenly places. Now, Paul is contrasting what happened to Jesus and what happens to Christians. Jesus died physically. Unbelievers are dead spiritually. Christ was raised physically. Believers are raised spiritually. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you didn't know that's where he's at, that's where he's at. Believers will be seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, I believe there's two things Paul is saying in this verse. One is, we are seated right now with Christ in a spiritual sense. The Spirit of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is living in us, and we in a spiritual sense are alive in Christ, seated with him in a place of authority, and we have the power of his name. We walk in his authority because being spe- seated speaks of authority. Jesus has given us spiritual authority over things and to bind, to loose, and to do all that. That's number one. Number two, we have a place in heaven, as Paul says, in the age to come that he might through the riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. So in one sense, one person said, we're not seated with Christ. I mean, the the text literally says we're seated with Christ. It doesn't say we're just going to be, or we were, we are present tense seated with Christ. And then two, we will be seated in a real sense in the age to come. That's such, that's so good. That's such good news. Thank you, Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. So how are we saved? Let's let's set the record straight here for all of you that are like, you're all about works, brother. Just because you're lazy, don't get mad at me. Let's, let's set the record straight here. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any should boast. Okay, so let's get it straight. Set the record here. How are we saved? By grace, through faith. There's no works to get saved. There's nothing you can muster up if you fast for 20 days, you could be saved. That's not how it works. It is not works. Type in the chat. I'm not saved by works. Is that clear? Tag this, clip this, send this to your favorite heresy hunter that you watch all their videos because you have no drama in your life. So you need to go find it on YouTube. Okay. We're not saved by works. Works do not save you. Can I say that five more times for those of you that still don't understand? Now, this is where they stop at. The guys that don't do anything that say, it's not about works, brother. And the only people that say that are people that don't have any works. But don't stop there. So we know it's not by works. I'm not saved by works. But this is where you have to keep reading. For we are his workmanship. Created. This is so good. Look at it. No one ever does this. Keep going. Created in Christ Jesus for, what does it say here? Good works. Why does nobody quote this? We're not saved by works, but keep reading. We're God's workmanship. Created in Christ. What are we created for? Chat. Good works. That's what it says. And then it says this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is a revelation. Because I've heard this verse a million times. We're not saved by grace. The next time somebody quotes that verse, Ephesians 2 says, we're not saved by grace. It's not not about works, brother. Tell them, read one more verse. Because it says, we were created for good works. That's literally why we were created. Like, there's nobody in the chat listening to this here. And then the works were prepared. So Paul wants to make it clear. All the benefits, the last two chapters, they can't be earned. No one can earn it. We all agree. Amen. Type one, we all agree. We can't get good enough for this. But Paul says we're his workmanship created for good works. And before God prepared them beforehand to walk in them. So here's how it works. For you were made, God knew if you were going to serve him or not. God already knows. He pre-knows. He doesn't predestine. He pre-knows. So God knows that Isaiah Saldivar is going to serve me. God knows before the earth was created, think about this. God says, okay, 19 years old, Isaiah is going to say yes to me in Modesto, California at a church on January 12th, 2011. God says, Isaiah is going to say yes to my call. So God prepares, God created me for good works. We're all created for good works. God prepares a pathway of good works and God 
creates this path of good works. What I'm doing right now, God created before the foundation of the word beforehand. And God says, Isaiah should walk in this path. So Isaiah gets saved, not by works. I come and say, God, I don't believe in you. If you're real, I'll serve you. God saves me. I'm born again. I believe in Jesus. The whole works, the shebang, boom. I'm now saved. Now that I'm saved, that was all grace. I didn't do anything. Now that I'm saved, there's a path of good works that God wants me to walk on, that he designed beforehand. And here's the kicker. He gave me everything I needed to walk in the path of good works. So now I'm called to walk in the path of good works. In other words, God didn't save you to put you on a shelf. God didn't save you to warm a chair. He saved you for his purposes of good works. We are God's masterpiece. And he shows us off to creation of the way he works in us. God shows us off to creation. The way he saved us, redeemed us. You're God's prophetic picture to humanity that God is alive and well and God is real. So don't say, oh, well, it's not works. Every single one of you listening right now as I, as I go towards the end of this, every single one of you have a path of good works God's prepared and he's ready to go. All you need to do is say yes to God. Pray today. Say, Lord, order my steps. I want to do this. We're going to pray that in a second. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. This is very self-explanatory here. Therefore, remember that you once Gentile in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off were brought near by the blood of Jesus. So Paul's talking about the Gentiles. You were far off, you were distant, but now you are brought near by the blood of Christ. You're welcomed in. You're no longer an alien. You've been given a passport to the kingdom of God. You're no longer alienated. Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. For he himself in our, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is a law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace that he might reconcile from both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby putting to death the enmity, and he preached, and he, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and those that are near. The enmity not only between us and God, there's a wall, we know this, I preach this, God has removed the wall, the separation, the enmity, but also the Jews and the Gentile are separated. God has removed that wall. And also the law that was separating us from serving God and being righteous, God removed that wall. So all the walls have been removed. There's no separation. There's no Greek nor Jew nor Gentile. We're all one in Christ, equal before God. Last part here, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Who? Jews and Gentiles. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building fitted together grows into a holy temple and whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. This is what he's saying. We are now citizens of heaven. There's no separation. God is no longer dwelling in buildings or temples, but God is dwelling in people. That is what Paul is saying built on the apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is no longer living in a special building or a special temple. He is dwelling in us tonight. Here's our prayer. There's 3,000 of you here in the broadcast. Praise the Lord. Lord, make me a house of prayer. Lord, you created me for good works. I want to be a house of prayer. I want to be a place where the Holy Spirit, come on, somebody type this in chat. I want to be a place where the Holy Spirit can work. I want to be a construction site for the Holy Spirit where he can perform his good works through my life. Father, I pray right now over every person in the chat. Lord, let us walk on the path of good works. Lord, let us not be lazy, stagnant Christians that say, oh, it's not about works. When your word says, Father, you created us in Christ for good works. Let us work for your kingdom. Let us work for your glory. I pray tonight, Lord, you would break off the spirit of laziness. Lord, I ask you to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our understanding. Enlighten us, God. Open up our mind. Open up our heart. Open up our spirit tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. God, have your way right now. Make me a house of prayer. Somebody type that in the chat. Lord, Make me a house of prayer. Let the fire on my altar never burn out. Let me be the temple of the Holy Spirit. No longer made by hands, no longer this, no longer that. I now am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Father, I ask you right now, do the work in Jesus' name. Do what only you can do by your spirit, by your power, by your anointing. 
I just pray, Holy Spirit, have your way right now. Have your way right now, God. Make me a house of prayer. Do what only you can do in my life. Do what only you can do in my marriage. Do what only you can do in my finances. Do what only you can do in my family. Have your way in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray you'd bring deliverance. I pray you'd bring healing. I pray you'd bring breakthrough. Some that are not saved, Father, that are sons of the devil, I pray tonight they would repent. Some of you need to repent. And they would become children of God. Not of natural scent, not of human decision or husband's will, but children born of the Spirit. Tonight, some of you in Jesus' name will become children of God. Friend, you have an inheritance. God has given you an inheritance. Claim that inheritance. Every spiritual blessing. You don't need to go tonight and say, I need spiritual blessings. God says, I've given you every spiritual blessing. God, let us realize the spiritual blessings that you've given us. In Jesus' name, I thank you, Lord, for every single person here in the chat. Touch their bodies, heal their minds, restore them right now in Jesus' name. Restore them right now in Jesus' name. Lord, do what only you can do. Do what only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your anointing. Open our minds, open our heart, empower us, God. No more laziness, no more deadness, no more dryness. It is all about Jesus. He's reconciled you. It's time to serve the Lord. It's time to serve the Lord until he returns. There's a man coming back, a real Jewish man. He's coming back to earth to establish a government. Father, do what only you can do. I claim my inheritance. I claim my inheritance in Jesus' name. Every spiritual blessing, I claim my inheritance in Jesus' name. I want all that you have for me, Lord. I'll respond to every altar call. Some of you maybe you need humility. Lord, humble me. I pray that I would stay humble. I don't ever want to get arrogant, Father. I don't ever want to get haughty or think I'm some, some hot shot. But Father, I'm nobody. I'm just a slave of God. I'm a slave of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Wholeness. Lord, baptize those in the Holy Spirit that had never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I pray right now, baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Power of God be released. Anointing of God be released. In Jesus' name, I just pray the anointing of God be released now. Holy Spirit, fire. Holy Spirit, fire. Holy Spirit, power. Have your way in our lives. Have your way in our marriages. Some of, some of you need to make space for the Holy Spirit. Your life is too cluttered. It's too busy. There's too much of you in it. And God is saying, give me room, give me space so that I can move. Lord, we give you space. Holy Spirit, have your way. Make us a house of prayer. Fill our life with you. I want my life, my sole purpose to serve you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.